you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Manuel Betancourt of Film Quarterly, where he's contributing editor, and Andy Klein, reviewer for AV Club. First up is The Marvels. Brie Larson, a.k.a. Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers in the latest of the Marvel films, has reclaimed her identity from Kree and taken revenge on the supreme intelligence. Uh, the film also stars Iman uh, Villani and is directed by Nia DaCosta uh, and co-written by DaCosta with Megan McDonald and Elisa Karasik. Andy, what do you think of the Marvels? Oh boy, I am so tired of the MCU, and I'm tired of DC. And back in the early 2000s, both of those were putting out some really good films, and now it's the same film over and over and over again. Uh, I don't know why there's still an audience. I will, however, say that this one is directed in an audience that couldn't be further from me the, uh, as possible. It, it is basically for teenage girls. That's the whole orientation here is that an average American teenage girl from Jersey City somehow gets linked up to Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel's uh, her sister or her daughter, whatever, somebody she's alienated from, they haven't talked in years. And the three of them start switching powers and switching locations and they they all have to go do battle against, you know, evil, you know, an evil villain as the they usual. always do. Yes. Yes. I will say in this case that the evil villain played by Zawe Ashton, uh, she steal, steals the show. She really glowers in a way that, I mean, I was just knocked out. She was the only thing in the film that knocked me out. She had out. you scared in your seat as you watched? I... Uh, no, more than that, she was so evil I was attracted to her. <laughs> um, but, you know, the entire film is the same old, uh, you know, I throw my power bolt at you and you throw your power bolt at me and if I can only get the bracelet off the other person that I'll be able to make cracks in the universe and destroy the reality of the universe. Well, this is the ongoing problem. I mean, this is what the Marvel Universe is dealing with right now, is that viewer fatigue. Yes. And I know the Marvels <laughs> is tracking behind uh, what they were hoping for audience awareness and interest. Well, and I suspect that since a lot of the audience always was teenage boys and young men, I don't think they're going to relate to this. I mean, it's great that it's in all... I mean, all the heroes are women, all the villains are women. I mean, basically, men are like little side characters. Uh -huh. um, but it it's just, uh, it's really juvenile. Uh, and at the same time, I don't know what the rating is, 
but you know, I mean, you have some real gore. You have a huge flock of carnivorous cats who will just like zip and eat a person in no time flat. It's PG so, thirteen, so that's, I guess that's the carnivorous cats. Yeah, probably so. Brie Larson stars in the Marvels, directed and co-written by Nia DaCosta. The film is rated PG thirteen in wide release. It's a Wonderful Knife, a comedic horror mystery, stars Justin Long, Cassandra No, and Jane Widop. The film's directed by Tyler McIntyre, and Michael Kennedy wrote the screenplay of It's a Wonderful Knife, set on Christmas Eve. Manuel. I, I wanted to like this more. It's one of those, like, this is the title that tells you exactly what this movie is. Uh, someone pitched it as, It's a Wonderful Life, but it's a slasher. <laughs> Weirdly. And that, I, I was kind of intrigued by it. So this young woman, fi- like, wishes that she'd never been born because the, the year before she had to kill a serial killer uh, and that sort of weighing on her and then she wakes up and it's Christmas Eve and she was never born and somehow the town is even worse and her family has gotten worse and it's up to her to you know kill the serial killer again and unravel sort of this life and get back to where she was and of course in the process she learns that you know the life that she had was a lot better than she thought she uh, she did um it really wants to be sort of a modern scream. It has that kind of sort of like comedic. Uh, it's not quite as punchy as scream. Uh, it's not quite as well directed as scream. Like you miss Wes Craven's like real ability to sort of make you um, hesitate and be on the edge of your seat. It's like, oh my god, are they really going to get slashed? Will they be able to get away? Will they be able to run? Will they be able? And it, this, it, it's all a little too too contrived and I just I was never I was never worried for anyone involved which is not a thing you want to be saying about a slasher what about the comedic elements of it Manuel was it funny at points it is funny at points and Justin Long and Joel McHale you know they're both very funny actors and the and the two um, teenage leads female leads are are sort of great but I just I, I just I wanted more. I think it's such a, it was such an intriguing and fun sort of logline premise that I don't think they sort of took advantage of it all. It's a wonderful knife. Andy? Almost total agreement. Um, it was nice to see Justin Long playing evil, which I don't think I've ever seen him do before because he's such a likable screen presence. Uh, there were some plot things that, I mean, it's not It's a Wonderful Life. It wants to sort of be... <laughs> And you can tell shot for shot, technique for technique, that it's not as well made. Uh, It's a clever concept. Uh, For half the film, you're saying, why doesn't she realize that she just did It's a Wonderful Life and go back to the bridge (laughs) and wish for her life back? And you discover at a certain point she refers to a friend as her Clarence, which means she does know the film and she still doesn't think to go back to the bridge until right near the end of the film. And that just drove me bonkers. It's a wonderful knife in select theaters. It's rated R starring Justin Long, Cassandra No, Jane Whittup and Joel McHale. Tyler McIntyre is the director. Uh, Yes, Abel is uh, a Spanish film. Uh, that uh, tells uh, the story of uh, wealthy young adults for best friends and their hedonistic life uh, that comes to an abrupt end. It's a crime thriller. The film is directed by Hernan Yabez Aguia. Uh, the film is also uh, co-written with Aguila. Manuel, what did you think of Yesabel? Uh, so I grew up in Colombia. 
which is near, it's next door to Venezuela. And I went to a private school with a lot of privileged um, kids that felt very familiar when I started watching this film. Uh, these people who move through life with sort of careless abandon and have no regard for people who are not of their status, who are not of their uh, up to par. Um, so I, I was already sort of um, pulled in, uh, and there is a murder at the, at the at the heart of it. But sort of the story really takes place like 16 years later, when the one boy who was part of this um, group of friends uh, seems to be guilt ridden and wants to sort of um, is forced to sort of think back to what happened and why happened, why everything sort of went awry, and why his friend died. Um, it's a little bit of a thriller and it's a little bit of a mystery and it slowly unfurls and it gets uh, sort of darker and twisted and it is very hedonistic. But to me, this was a story about injustice and about impunity and about how the privileged really can move through the world with no consequences. Uh, it's set against the backdrop of Venezuela and so Maduro is very much sort of in the background. It's not really at the center. But I thought what it's trying to say uh, about what it means to live in a country where justice is never served um, was really, um, I, I feel very touching to me. We're talking about uh, the Venezuelan film, Yesavel. What did you think, Andy? Uh, I liked it less. I mean, part of the problem is that all the major characters are terrible people, as you, as you have stated. I mean, they're the worst entitled privileged people in the world. And... It sort of ends with what I consider an Agatha Christie trick that I did not appreciate. Uh, it's a film where I feel like the allegory, which they discuss openly about that you have to own up to the crimes of the past, and they're talking about the government, is driving the narrative rather than the story. And that, for me, is always a problem. We're talking about Yezabel. The film is unrated in Spanish with English subtitles, and the film is available on demand. The documentary Albert Brooks, Defending My Life, uh, which, of course, is a reference to one of his terrific comedies. The film's made by his longtime friend, Rob Reiner, and includes interviews with many, many people who've worked with or known Brooks over many years. Andy, what did you think of this doc? I loved this. This was by far the most enjoyable thing I saw this week, partly because it's Albert Brooks, and I love Albert Brooks, and it's him and Rob Reiner sitting down. They've known each other since high school, and uh, sort of going over his career with lots of clips and reminders of how brilliant those films were. Uh, almost every one of them, except maybe uh, the Muslim world one, I thought was not so great. And the muse was not so great, but it also deals with his straight acting. And you have testimonials by virtually everybody, Wanda Sykes and Conan O'Brien. And uh, Letterman says, I wish I had had Albert's career rather than my own career. Wow. wow. And the, both of these guys are really funny together. And the, the whole thing was just a Frickin' delight. Albert Brooks, Defending My Life. Manuel. I, I will be the dissenting opinion on this one. Okay. Uh, I think if you love Albert Brooks, you're going to love Albert Brooks, Defending My Life. Uh, given the structure, which is Rob and Albert sort of talking and they're sitting and they've just had dinner and they're just reminiscing, uh, it makes for a kind of very insular um, 
sort of film. So it's like, remember when you did this? Oh, yes, I do remember when you did this. Roll the clip. Oh, remember when you did that? Oh, yes, I love doing that. Let's roll the clip. Remember when we did this? Remember you did... And there's a lot of like back and forth that it feels like as a portfolio of Brooks's career, it's fascinating. I don't know if I got a lot of insight into Brooks as a as a performer or as a comedian um, that his work hadn't already given me. So the clips are very self-revealing, but the conversation felt to me uh, like you're just hanging out with him. And, and do you think there was a problem that he and Reiner have been friends for it would have been better someone without the personal connection? I hope so. I think so. And it's one of those, like, they do have amazing people, but they use, like, 10 seconds of Sharon Stone and they use 10 seconds of Wanda Sykes and 10 seconds of Chris Rock. Letterman gets a little bit more more airtime. Uh, but I just, it, it's not really... It, it's not really as comprehensive as I would have wanted because Brooks is such a towering comedic uh, sort of figure. I just, there's so much there and it ends up being sort of a clip show, which is entertaining. Well, as a fan of Brooks, I'm, I'm sure I'll be watching this one. Albert Brooks Defending My Life is unrated and it's streaming on Max. Uh, Who I Am Not, a South African set uh, film. Uh, the film is unrated. Manuel, we have a couple minutes before our break. Please tell us about Who I Am Not. And it's uh, it's a documentary about two intersex South Africans. Yeah, um, it really works as a primer on what intersex is and how uh, these two individuals are sort of stuck between knowing that the world wants to slot them into you're either born male or you're the born female. But of course, their phenotype and their genotype um, are proof that such clear distinctions are sort of impossible to draw. Um, and they're dealing with the kinds of surgeries that they were uh, they were done on them as a kid, uh, as a kid, and they're trying to sort of figure out how to live their lives. It's very touching. It's very informative. Um, I was really taken with sort of the grace and the humanity with which it treats it, both, both its subjects. Who I Am Not, the film is directed by Tunde Skovran, a feature directorial debut for her. Uh, Who I Am Not is unrated, and it's in English and uh, the uh, Sesotho language as well. And uh, you can see it at Lemley's NoHo 7 in North Hollywood. When we come back, we'll be hearing about Your Lucky Day, a thriller starring the late Angus Cloud, along with Elliot Knight and Jessica Garza, Daniel Brown, the writer and director. And we've got a documentary about Bella Lewitsky, the dancer, choreographer, and arts activist uh, with such an influential career, described as a uniquely Californian artist. And we'll find out about that, uh, Bella Lewitsky's life told in the documentary, Bella. That and much more is coming up up on Film Week here on LAist 89.3. That's just to come. And then later this hour, we'll be talking about Charlie Chaplin, a new biography of Chaplin, focusing on the time when he could not come back to the United States. We'll be back in just a minute. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. 
Alayist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. It's Film Week on LA State 89.3. Larry Mantle with critics Andy Klein and Manuel Betancourt. Next up, Your Lucky Day, a thriller starring the late Angus Cloud, who died just a few months ago of an accidental overdose. He was one of the stars of the series Euphoria. Also in the cast of Your Lucky Day, Elliot Knight and Jessica Garza. The film's written and directed by Daniel Brown. Andy, what did you think of Your Lucky Day? Well, now I know why Angus Cloud was so convincing in this part. He's playing a dirt-poor, drug-dealing lowlife who walks into a, what's essentially a 7-Eleven, some kind of mini-mart, just as somebody buys a lottery ticket that wins the $156 million jackpot. So, of course, he tries to hold the guy up. Mayhem happens. A cop wanders by and get shot and the people in there the the clerk and a young couple who were just there to get some ice cream everybody's working an angle it turns out every time you think somebody in this film is doing something that doesn't make sense you realize eventually no they've got an angle to get the money uh the cop who gets shot you're wondering, why does he call his dad rather than calling 911? And the reason he does is he and his dad want that $156 million. And it's very well worked out, um, fairly gruesome, uh, but I thought totally compelling and, you know, suspenseful all the way through. The film is Your Lucky Day, starring Angus Cloud. It's rated R. You can see it at the Alamo Draft House in downtown Los Angeles. Bella, a documentary about the dancer and choreographer based right here in Los Angeles. Bella Lewitsky. Bridget Murnane is the director of the doc. Andy. Um, I have broad cultural interests, but modern dance is not among them. And yet I found this uh, really a pretty riveting documentary, even though essentially it was subject matter that, you know, theoretically I'm not interested in. Uh, we follow the career of Bela Lewitsky, who died, I guess, about 20 years ago, 15 or 20 years ago, who became the central figure in L.A. modern dance, uh, starting out in New York and moving here and loving it here. Uh, the film interviews lots of people, including lots of interviews with her, and has excerpts from ballets that are not ballet. She would make a point. It's not ballet. It's modern dance that sometimes were quite baffling to me because they are so abstract. Uh, 
But for a story that I was not inherently interested in, I found this documentary totally interesting. Well, and that's the mark of a good doc, yeah. right? You're sitting down to watch something you have no interest in. The next mm-hmm. thing you know, you're totally enthralled with it. Absolutely. Uh, we're talking about Bella, the documentary about the life, work, and influence of L.A.-based dancer and choreographer and arts activist Bella Lewitsky. Uh, Bridget Murnane is the director. The documentary is unrated, and you can see it at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. This Much We Know, also a documentary uh, which looks at the suicide of Las Vegas teenager Levi Presley. But um, the filmmaker uncovers uh, the story of suicide in Las Vegas, the highest rate in the country, according to the film. The movie is uh, directed by L. Francis Henderson. Manuel, what did you think of This Much We Know? This is... I'm, I'm, I struggle a little bit with this film because I think it, it's very, its heart is on its right place. Um, so, yeah, in 2002, this 16-year-old went all the way up to the stratosphere um, in Las Vegas, climbed out the fence, and then jumped. And um, the filmmaker is driven by her desire to sort of make sense of suicide, which is, of course, a futile effort, um, because one of her friends... Uh, had taken her life um, years before, and she sort of she's she's still haunted. So, she wanted to make a movie about um, suicide, and this leads her to Levi's story and to Vegas, who which is apparently the the suicide capital of the United States. Um, and in a sort of diaristic, sort of memoiry, kind of essayistic, very poetic kind of way, she's trying to sort through her own feelings, through Levi's family's and friends' feelings. You know, uh, almost twenty years since he since he took his life. Uh, she's doing a lot of research. She ends up talking about the Yucca uh, Valley nuclear waste project, which may have something to do with why people in the city feel so adrift and groundedless. And so there's a lot of scientific research and a lot of philosophical research and some meditations and a lot of interviews. There's even some psychics and phone psychics that were calling on the phone. It's that the movie's a little bit all over the place, but it really is brought together by, by the filmmaker who's just, it's grasping at straws, trying to make sense of the sort of the that something that's senseless. And I, I thought there was like a modest ambition there and I was really taken by it, even though I don't, I didn't, I wasn't there for the entire ride, but um, it's it's very moving and it's, um, I think, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be thinking about a lot of things that, yeah. I, that I brought up. Well, it's, it's funny because Las Vegas, so much of the theory about why the divorce rate is so high, suicide rate, is that it's kind of the last stop for a lot of people. It's the place people go where you're almost guaranteed a job if if you can work with the public because of the huge hospitality industry. Housing has been historically comparatively inexpensive. So it's and people go there just like Southern California has been historically to reinvent themselves. Yeah. And Vegas has has offered the way to do that professionally and in many ways relationally and personally. So I've always sort of attributed the sort of tragic flip side to that. There's so many people that are kind of, this is the last step. And then I'm struggling. And I think this is why this 16-year-old story ends up being sort of an exception because you could understand 
someone later in age taking their life, but a 16-year-old who had no signs of depression, had like clearly is is a textbook exemption. Like they're like there was nothing pointed at it. There was no family history. There was no nothing. And so that's why the the, the mystery of the heart of the movie is sort of then hard to solve because you can't every time she points at something like his it story doesn't it, it doesn't apply here. And so Wow. Sounds like a powerful film. This much we know is unrated. It's at Lemley's Monica Film Center uh, next Wednesday, the 15th. Uh, That's the day that it opens. As We Know It is set in late 1990s Los Angeles, a horror comedy that stars Mike Castle, Oliver Cooper, Taylor Blackwell, and Chris Parnell. Pam Greer is in the cast, always a great thing. Josh Monkarsh directed the film and also co-wrote it with Brandon DePaulo and Christopher Francis. Andy, what did you think of As We Know It? Uh, (laughs) Well, how many zombie apocalypse movies can we take? Uh, in this case, the funny part is that the zombie apocalypse is somehow triggered by a popular brand of soy milk. And so the Hollywood Hills is totally infested <laughs> with zombies. And the entire thing takes place in the Hollywood Hills with zombies wandering around in this one household uh, where a guy and his best friend are holed up and eventually the ex-girlfriend of one of them. Uh, Pam Greer is only there for maybe four minutes total on screen, but she's still Pam Greer, and it's great to see her. Yeah. Uh, the lead kind of looks like Mark Duplass, and a lot about this film reminded me of Duplass Brothers films in that it feels almost improvised. It feels kind of mumblecore to me, uh, and unfortunately not that well improvised. At the very end, there's a two-minute segment during the credits that's an interview with uh, Chris Parnell and one of the characters, Chris Parnell, playing a newsman. And it's just dull, and they're clearly improvising, and there's nothing there. And I felt the film just kind of laid flat. As We Know It is the comedy horror film. Manuel, what did you think? Yeah, all I kept wondering was why, and why is it a zombie movie? Why? Because it's... It's this weird thing, like I, the breakup seems to be the key, the core emotional tenet of the, of the film, but that seems divorced from the zombie apocalypse that's happening outside, because it's not a, like, let's let, we need to go fight zombies, it's like we need to hold ourselves up and deal with our emotional issues in this house. It's also set in the late 90s, which I can only imagine is so that they could not have smartphones on the <laughs> in the film, because somehow this, this person who's in this house doesn't know the zombie apocalypse is happening. It's because he hasn't turned on the news, which, again, would, it's only a sad thing that happened with, back in the 90s. With his 26-inch CRT TV right. <laughs> and his laser disc player. Yeah. yeah, and there's a lot... that It also makes for a lot of Waterworld jokes. Uh, I don't know how many people are in the uh, market for Waterworld jokes, but if you are, um, as we know, it truly delivers. Um, <laughs> faint praise, but I think that's as much as I can give it. As we know it, a horror comedy. It's at Lemley's Monica Film Center opening next Wednesday, the 15th. Josh Monkars, the director and co-screenwriter. It's rated R. The action comedy Adventures of the Naked Umbrella stars Jeremy Davis, Taryn Manning, and Richard Riley. Uh, the film's written and directed by Gerald Brunskill. Andy? This seems to... I guess Jeremy Davies changed his name to Davis for not to be confused or something. But uh, this is him at his most Jeremy Davies. You may remember him from Spanking the Monkey, where he was great. And then a number of films where he plays 
wigged out, freaked out characters, always hysterical. And he's playing one of those characters here. We've seen him do it before. He's a podcaster, and the title of the film is the title of his podcast, and he's obsessed with UFOs. And he's clearly kind of psycho, and people are getting murdered. And uh, it just felt almost totally random to me. Uh, It just goes on, and weird and wacky things happen that are unfortunately generally not very funny weird and wacky things. Adventures of the Naked Umbrella, starring Jeremy Davis and Taryn Manning, written and directed by Gerald Brunskill. It's unrated, and it's available both on demand and at Lemley's Glendale Theater in Glendale. Gentlemen, coming up, we're going to be talking about uh, Charlie Chaplin and particularly uh, the period where he's persona non grata in the United States, uh, dealing with a variety of challenges, including sex allegations, uh, political allegations against him. Scott Iman, uh, who's uh, author of the new book, Charlie Chaplin versus America, is going to join us. But Andy, I want to start with you, just your thoughts about the importance of Chaplin as a filmmaker, and you could do whole film school courses just on him, but what makes him such a great filmmaker? Well, he was the first great universal movie star for the first, you know, as one part. He was the most identifiable man in the world because silent films traveled. And uh, the fact is that his work started out very good and got great. And as he developed his chops as a filmmaker, uh, he moved past that two, three, four real format into features that were profound, that were beautifully directed, that weren't just funny, uh, with great technique. I mean, he's simply, you know, an overreaching figure in film history. You, you ever think about what he would have done had he been able to come back to the U.S. and resume his career? I I think about that, but it's unfortunate that the last two films he made were not very good. Uh, the King in New York, which he made abroad in the 50s, and then Countess from Hong Kong with Marlon Brando and Sophia Loren. Uh, and you, it did feel as though he had stayed past his expiration date. I hate to say that for a guy who was so brilliant, who did, did a great mo- dictator, modern yeah. times and, and great dictator and city lights above all else. Uh, he just seemed to have lost his muse or it was the conditions of his life. Well, that's what he, I was wondering if that took a toll, all the stressful events. So. Manuel, your, your thoughts about the legacy of Chaplin. Yeah. To me, whenever it's funny, I was just watching Bertolucci's The Last Dreamers, where they have this extended conversation between whether you're a Chaplin or a Keaton fan. Uh, and I've always been, I've always been more of a Keaton fan. But the thing that I've always been bowled over by Chaplin is his expressiveness. So I think of him as a performer, and I think he was one of those people who really, the physicality and the texturedness that he brought to a performance, which is his face, because sometimes that's all he had to work with. He really had a great command of his instrument and really knew how to capture himself. And really, it makes sense why millions and millions of people all over the world continue mm-hmm. to find him enthralling and fascinating and will continue to see all of his films and find something to just to be in awe of. I find it so hard to choose between Keaton and, yeah. <laughs> and Chaplin and Lloyd. I mean, all all three, uh, it's just, it's like who I've seen most recently in a film, having seen um, um, most of all of, you know, the films of those three filmmakers. And each is just such a unique genius. Yeah. 
And we don't have to choose, right? And I think that's the other right. part. It's yeah. like we have them all, and there's no reason to pit them against each other. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's going to come up uh, right after our break. Scott Iman with us, Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. We'll talk about that uh, aspect of Chaplin's life after he had made these classic American films. It's Film Week, our critics this week, Manuel Betancourt of Film Quarterly, Andy Klein of AV Club, And if you didn't hear their reviews earlier of uh, films like the documentary Bella on Bella Lewitsky or The Marvel starring Brie Larson or a horror mystery comedy, It's a Wonderful Knife, you can hear those reviews and the entirety of Film Week wherever you get your podcasts or at LAist.com. Be back in 90 seconds. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.